All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, number 30, for September 2021. The Saturday Gazette, Joseph Clay Neal, Louis Antoine Godey, and Morton McMichael. Cemetery is a National Historic Landmark, an arboretum, a sculpture garden, a nature preserve, and an active cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of people every year. Its sister cemetery, West Laurel Hill Cemetery, is located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood. It was founded in 1869 and has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University in Philadelphia and volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery and volunteer podcaster. Join me for the next 60 minutes or so to learn about three permanent inhabitants of Laurel Hill Cemetery who were instrumental in publishing important newspapers and magazines in the third and fourth decades of the 1800s. Joseph Clay Neal, whom many called the American Dickens, started his writing career with an evening newspaper, The Daily Courier, and ended up fostering the career of a teenage girl who became one of the primary woman writers of the 19th century. Louis Antoine Godey, whose ladies' book was struggling until he had the good sense to hire an Episcopalian woman from Boston as his editor. And this turned his magazine into the, one of the most widely circulated in the country. And Morton McMichael, who was not only a writer, editor, and publisher, but Philadelphia County Sheriff and Philadelphia City Mayor, yet he is little remembered today. The three of them came together for several years in the 1830s and 1840s to produce two moderately successful publications and inspire another young author named Edgar Allan Poe. All of this and more in the September 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories. If you wanted to pick up a magazine to read on your journey to Laurel Hill Cemetery in the late 1830s and early 1840s, you had a handful to choose from. Every Bodie's Album was a large monthly magazine containing a miscellany of humorous tales, essays, anecdotes, and facetiae. The Weekly Messenger was published from 1836 to 1840. Waldy's Literary Omnibus was a weekly journal devoted to, quote, news, books and tire, sketches, reviews, tales, and miscellaneous intelligence, end quote. The Philadelphia Visitor and Parlor Companion was published fortnightly and filled with toys of fashion and shreds of social folly. If you were medically inclined, you might read the American Journal of Homeopathy or the American Phrenological Journal, both of which started in 1838. 
Then there was the farmer's cabinet devoted to agriculture, the Baptist record, self-explanatory, the literalist, the dramatic mirror and literary companion, and even the young people's book edited by John Frost, professor of history at Central High School. I talked about Frost and his talented family in a special video podcast on YouTube called A.B. Frost and His Family. The big four of Philadelphia magazines during these times were Godey's Ladies Book, The Saturday Evening Post, Graham's Magazine, and Peterson's Magazine. And all their editors ended up being interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. So you had a nice choice of reading for your brief journey. Where did magazines come from? In 1731, an Englishman named Edward Cave published a periodical that he called the Gentleman's Magazine. He invented the word magazine, which he derived from the Arabic word magazine, which means storehouse. These initial publications were mostly scraps of information, bits of news that are cobbled out of the newspapers of the day, or ultimately out of other magazines. The military had been using the term magazine as a storage place for ammunition for many years before that. The first two magazines in North America began publication in January 1741. Benjamin Franklin conceived the idea, but his newspaper rival Andrew Bradford's American Magazine or Monthly View of the Political State of the British Colonies beat Franklin to press by three days. Franklin's publication was called The General Magazine and Historical Chronicle for All the British Plantations in America. Bradford did have an advantage. He had a monopoly on all the paper coming out of the Rittenhouse paper mill in Rittenhouse Town along what we now call Lincoln Drive. Then it was known as the Wissahickon Turnpike. Franklin had to import his paper from Britain. But Bradford's magazine failed after three months. Franklin's lasted for six months, but as you know, Franklin kept trying. These earliest American periodicals were so expensive that only the wealthy could afford them. For that reason, they were geared toward their readership, the most learned, cultured, and sophisticated individuals of the day. Back then, much of the paper and printer's ink was taxed imported goods, and interstate tariffs and a poor road system made distribution difficult. Now, the first successful American periodicals were the Columbian Magazine and the American Museum, both also published in Philadelphia. Matthew Carey, the prominent printer, helped found both magazines, which lasted until 1792. They featured topical and historical essays, short narratives, poetry, one or two engravings per issue. Much of the material was reprinted from other magazines and newspapers from both America and abroad. But they also included original texts when possible. Charles Brockton Brown and William Byrd contributed articles to the Columbian magazine, while Benjamin Franklin and the poets known as the Connecticut Wits appeared in the American Museum. Several short-lived humor magazines sprang up in the late 18th and early 19th centuries, including The Bee, The Wasp, The Tickler, Porcupine's Gazette, and Political Censor. The longest-lasting was Joseph Denny's Port 
Portfolio, two words, which endured from 1799 through 1812 under his leadership. Denny was a gadfly of American Democrats. He was once arrested for sedition because of one of his anti-democracy squibs. The arrest was apparently considered more as harassment than a serious crime to judge by the outcome, which was a prompt dismissal of the case. By the 1820s, however, as American-made presses and paper and inks came into being, publishing was no longer such an expensive industry. Less expensive magazines aimed at the general public began to emerge. And rather than maintaining the intellectual air of their predecessors, these new magazines focused on amusement and entertainment. Now, the first of these cheap literary papers was the Saturday Evening Post, the lineal descendant of Benjamin Franklin's Pennsylvania Gazette. It had been near failing for years, when in 1821, at the death of David Hall, a grandson of Franklin's old partner, it came into the hands of Philadelphia journalist Thomas Cottrell Clark. It was now published in an office which had once been occupied by Franklin himself on Market Street, just a few doors below 2nd Street. As it absorbed other publications, it was able to boast a weekly circulation of 7,000 papers by 1827, and there was no part of the country where it didn't penetrate. You can hear more about the Saturday Evening Post when it came under the wing of Curtis Publishing Company in an earlier edition of All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, number 16, from July 2020. The success of the Post encouraged others to found periodicals, and the city soon became home for a large group of publishers, editors, writers, and engravers. After Thomas Cottrell Clark left the Post, he established the Album and Ladies Weekly Gazette, the Ladies Literary Portfolio, the Casket or Flowers of Literature, Wit, and Sentiment, and so on, it seems indefinitely. Since this podcast is about cemeteries, we think of a casket as being interchangeable with a coffin. But in those days, a casket was a container for keeping important documents. Readers would have understood the implication. Eventually, casket became a euphemism for coffin. In the 1840s, two Philadelphia editors found success in the magazine business. George Rex Graham, 1813-1894, found a Graham's magazine, which flourished from 1841 to 1858. And Charles Jacobs Peterson, 1819-1887, who joined with Graham in 1842. They were partners in the Saturday Evening Post, but he started... Peterson's Magazine, which lasted into the 1890s. Graham is interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section I. Peterson is buried in Section G. I will talk about both of them in a future podcast. Another publication that came into being in 1836, literally just weeks after the official announcement was made about the establishment of Laurel Hill Cemetery. It was called the Philadelphia Saturday News and Literary Gazette. Now, Gazette is a loan word from the French language, which is in turn a 16th century permutation of the Italian Gazetta, which was the name of a particular Venetian coin. Gazetta became an epithet for newspaper during the early and middle 16th century, when the first Venetian newspapers cost one Gazetta. 
the Saturday Gazette, whose first issue was dated 2 July 1836, lasted less than three years and was edited by Joseph Clay Neal, Louis Antoine Godey, and Morton McMichael. A few years later, these same three men would be involved in a magazine, Neal's Saturday Gazette and Ladies Literary Museum, which managed to last for four years. Simultaneously, all three of these men were involved in various other publishing adventures. And to tell the truth, it is highly confusing to keep track of who was editing what and who was writing for whom. For that reason, I will concentrate mostly on the men rather than on their publications. All three of these men, Neil, Godey, and McMichael, are interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery. They are the main subjects of today's podcast. Joseph Clay Neal, 1807-1847, is remembered today, if at all, as the American Dickens. He was born in Greenland, New Hampshire. His father, the Reverend James A. Neal, who had earlier been the head of a female academy in Philadelphia, died before Joseph was two years old, and his mother moved to Philadelphia where she operated a bookstore and worked in a library. So Neal grew up in a very bookish household. Neal first sought his fortune in the anthracite coal beds around Pottsville, but quickly realized this was not the life for him and returned to the city. He had started writing at an early age, and in 1831, at age 24, he took a job as editor of The Pennsylvanian, a Democratic daily evening newspaper, succeeding James Gordon Bennett, 1795-1872, as its editor, when that Scotsman went to The Daily Courier, a, quote, trivial and insincere journal which Philadelphians did not admire, end quote, before he headed to more favorable ground in New York City, where he became founder, editor, and publisher of the New York Herald. Neal's time at the Pennsylvanian lasted off and on until 1844. While there, he wrote a series called City Worthies, broadly drawn caricatures of various down-and-out inhabitants of the city. In general, they were loafers, easily recognized on the streets of Philadelphia. By 1838, he had assembled enough of these sketches to put together a book which he entitled Charcoal Sketches. It was a huge success and quickly went through several printings, with a sixth edition coming out in 1841 and Charles Dickens republishing them in London. The reviews were mixed, though. An early evaluator of Charcoal Sketches said... No one who has his facilities in a healthy condition can read them and not feel convinced they are productions of a superior and highly gifted mind. They not only smack strongly of what all true men love, genuine humor, rich, racy, glorious humor, at which you may indulge yourself in an honest outbreak of laughter and not feel ashamed afterward because you have thrown away good mirth on a pitiful jest. In all of them, light and trifling as they seem, and pleasant as they unquestionably are, there is a deep and solemn moral. His productions all bear the stamp of vigorous originality. He imitates no one, and least of all Mr. Dickens, to whom he has sometimes been compared. Another reviewer was not so kind. 
Mr. Neal has acquired a very extensive reputation through his charcoal sketches, the whole design of which may be stated as the depicting of the wharf and street loafer. But this design has been executed altogether in caricature. The extreme of burlesque runs throughout the work, which is also chargeable with a tedious repetition of slang and incident. The loafer always declaims the same nonsense, in the same style, gets drunk in the same way, and is taken to the watch house after the same fashion. Reading one chapter of the book, we read all. Any single description would have been an original idea well executed, but the dose is repeated ad nauseum and betrays a woeful poverty of invention. The manner in which Mr. Neal's book was belauded by his personal friends of the Philadelphia press speaks little for their independence or less for their taste. To dub the author of these charcoal sketches, which are really very excellent police reports, with the title of The American Boz, is either outrageous nonsense or malevolent irony." End quote. The author of this scathing review was a young critic named Edgar Allan Poe. You can find PDFs of several of Neil's works on the web, including Picnic Sketches, Peter Plotty and other oddities, and of course, Neil's Charcoal Sketches. While editing The Pennsylvanian, Neil got together with the editor of another magazine, Louis Antoine Godey of Godey's Ladies Book, and started a weekly cross between a newspaper and a magazine. Morton McMichael gladly became their publisher. Thus, the Philadelphia Saturday News and Literary Gazette was born, followed a few years later by Neil's Saturday Gazette and Ladies Literary Museum, usually known simply as the Saturday Gazette or Neil's Gazette. While editing the Gazette, Neil received submissions from a young schoolgirl writer named Emily Bradley, 1827 to 1863. She submitted several sketches under the name Alice G. Lee, and then took the name Cousin Alice. During a sickly childhood, during which Emily experienced several months-long periods of blindness, she alternated between attending school and listening to her aunt read aloud to her. She developed a remarkable talent for remembering long passages of poetry after hearing it read only once. A friend dared her to submit a short story to Neil's Saturday Gazette, and Neil responded warmly, publishing the story and praising its author's intelligence and originality. She continued to send him her work under the pseudonym of Alice G. Lee, or Cousin Alice, and he mentored her writing. Eventually, their correspondence grew into a romance. They married on 12 December 1846. She was 19 years old. He was 40. At his request, he admired her Scottish-sounding pen name. Emily adopted the name Alice permanently. But on 17 July 1847, Joseph Clay Neal, who had suffered for years with tuberculosis, died rather suddenly of, quote, congestion of the brain, or possibly brain fever, at age 40, leaving behind his young widow Alice, 21 years his junior. They had been married for less than seven months. 
Alice assumed editorial control of the Gazette for the next five years and wrote several popular children's books under her pen name, Cousin Alice. In 1849, she was confirmed into the Episcopal Church at St. Peter's at Third and Pine. In 1853, she married Samuel L. Haven and abandoned the Gazette and Philadelphia and her cousin Alice persona. She continued writing morality stories for youth under the name Alice Bradley Haven and had five children. But she died of tuberculosis at age 34, shortly after the birth of her fifth. She is buried in Westchester County, New York. Joseph Clay Neal has a monument which at one time was one of the showpieces at Laurel Hill Cemetery, but it has not weathered well. It is in Section P, overlooking the Schuylkill River, at the bottom of a set of rather hazardous steps leading from the graves of scientist and oceanographer Ferdinand Hassler and Laurel Hill co-founder Nathan Dunn. But before you go all the way down the steps and reach the crypt cave of polar explorer Dr. Elijah Kent Kane, if you can find it online, the 1852 publication of Smith's Illustrated Guide to and through Laurel Hill Cemetery, a tour up the Schuylkill by R.A. Smith, describes what it looked like then. Joseph C. Neal, the author of the celebrated charcoal sketches and for several years the editor of Neal's Gazette, is situated on the first terrace, a short distance north of the summer house. It consists of a massive block of marble in the rough, surmounted by an urn, which, remarkably graceful in form, is tastefully ornamented with floriated bands, etc. A stringless lyre reclines against the vase. Below it, on the south front, is a tablet in the form of a shield bearing the following. Joseph C. Neal, born 1807, died 1847 a tribute of affectionate regret from those who loved him as a man and admired him as an author. At the founding of the country, literacy rates in the United States were much higher than in Europe. It's estimated that around 80% of men and 50% of women in New England were literate. And these numbers rose quickly. By the 1800s, only one in four Americans were illiterate. The first American periodicals for women were founded in Boston and Philadelphia. Gentlemen's and Ladies Town and Country began publication in Boston in 1784, but it lived but nine months. Eight years later appeared the Philadelphia Ladies Magazine and Repository of Entertaining Knowledge. That one lasted about a year. In 1820, Boston had three periodicals for women, but they too found an early grave. Now, unlike today, magazine failures were not considered serious. An editor picked himself up after a fall, dusted himself off, pitched into the less interesting work of job printing, and in the following year or so tried the fickle public anew. Little capital was required, a small press, some community goodwill and several acquaintances, a little cultivation of county fashionables, wits, and the younger set, an apt pen, and a more apt pair of shears, and voila! The result was a repository, or magazine, or miscellany, and the market was often glutted. While many women wished to read, 
All the journals were aimed at but one type of reader, the kind for which English magazines had been and would be printed. Not until the publication of Sarah Josepha Hale's Ladies Magazine in Boston in 1828 did a periodical appear that catered to a class of women who could never have been satisfied by American imitations of British journals for the quality. Sarah Josepha Buell was born in 1788 from God-fearing Connecticut stock that had moved to the New Hampshire wilderness. Her brother, a student at Dartmouth, passed on to Sarah what he had learned of Latin and philosophy. At 25, she married self-made David Hale, a sober, industrious lawyer. Nine years later, he died, leaving her five children and the memory of many quiet evenings spent together in the study of English literature. This New Hampshire widow with five children had taken a giant leap with Ladies Magazine. She saw her audience as an untapped and as yet inarticulate group of middle-class women, women of the sewing circle rather than the salon, of the lyceum rather than of the theater, women coping with life on serious terms earnest about philanthropies and progress and proud of their new country, not the pampered and over-leisured dolls of Boston and its parlors, but women interested in extramural activities, but for intramural ends. Louis Antoine Gaudi was born in New York in 1804 to poor French immigrant parents. He did not attend school and at age 15 took a job as a newspaper boy in New York. In 1828, he moved to Philadelphia and became an editor for the Daily Chronicle. In 1830, he decided to start his own magazine. He purchased some old plates from the owner of a defunct publication and took articles from circulating British newspapers, illustrations from French magazines. He made a modest but dubious entry into magazine publishing in 1830 with his own ladies book. Godey married Maria Catherine Duke, 1810-1875, in 1833, and they had five children. He saw what Sarah Hale was doing in Boston with her magazine, and he was jealous. So he tried to hire her, but she declined. By 1837, Godey had acquired enough capital to purchase the Ladies' Magazine of Boston, primarily so that its editress, Sarah Josepha Hale, would be his employee. She accepted her new boss, but refused to move to Philadelphia until her youngest child finished school. For the next four years, she edited Godey's Ladies' Book by mail from Boston. She finally moved to Philadelphia in 1841, where her name remains synonymous with the magazine until 1877, when she was in her late 80s. Hale was one of a kind, a lady editor at a time when such a position was unheard of. She was not a liberal, but rather a dynamic conservative. Judged by the stodgiest, she was advanced. But in an age of tremendous inspiration and reform activity, she was, in essence, a Tory. She was a high church Episcopalian who, quote, when dressed for church, was an imposing spectacle, rather like a duchess, end quote. Favoring peace, she found that there were good wars and proved by the Bible that God was on her side. 
She was an ardent feminist, but strictly within the bounds of female delicacy. She deplored slavery, but opposed the anti-slavery agitation. She always worked within the rules. Her reaction to controversy was always, something should be done about that. She had a conservative mind animated by a radical spirit. You can find more on Sarah in the August 2019 edition of All Bones Considered, entitled Holidays Among the Stones. From 1840 to 1850, Godey's Magazine was at the height of its popularity and influence. Unlike other magazines, Mr. Godey published the names of his writers. He also paid his authors. Instead of stealing material from English periodicals and books, as did other publishers, he sought material from American writers. The demand was principally for trivial, albeit entirely innocent, love stories and sentimental sketches for a magazine that employed up to 150 women in various roles. Yet no American writer was too great to disdain a place in Godey's pages or to despise the payment that came from writing for it. Edgar Allan Poe, Washington Irving, Nathaniel Hawthorne, William Gilmore Sims, Oliver Wendell Holmes, dozens more fought to have their works seen by Godey's readers. Godey was a skillful advertiser for his wares. He declared with truth that he expended more money in the production of his magazine than any other lady book publisher of the time. With each issue, Godey gave his subscribers a number of admirably executed steel engravings, colored fashion plates, patterns for the use of needlewomen, models of cottages, furniture, etc. He announced exultantly in 1859 that it cost him $105,200 to produce the ladies' book. The coloring of his fashion plates alone cost $8,000. And soon, the circulation of Godey's reached 15,000 copies. By 1850, it was about 80,000, and in the year before the war, 150,000 copies at a rate of $3 per year. Being business conservatives, Hale and Godey refused to take a stand on slavery or the war. They had thousands of readers in the South. Now, despite Godey's attempts at neutrality, his circulation plummeted during the war. He lost about a third of his readers. Godey sold the magazine in 1877 to John Hill Says Hollenbeek. At the time, he proudly stated, quote, Not an immoral thought or profane word can be found in the magazine during the whole 571 months of its publication. He could speak intimately of his friendships with Washington Irving, Charles Dickens, James Gordon Bennett, William Makepeace Thackeray, Edwin Forrest, Edgar Allan Poe, Dr. Robert Montgomery Byrd, Henry Clay, Daniel Webster, and President James Buchanan. After a long illness of several years, Godey died on 29 November 1878 at age 74 in his home at 1517 Chestnut Street. He was sitting in his chair reading when suddenly his paper fell from his hand and he fell back dead. He was interred five days later at Laurel Hill in a mausoleum in the WXYZ circle. After further changes of ownership and a name change to Godey's Magazine to reflect a broader content, his magazine ceased publication in 1896. 
His editress, Sarah Josepha Hale, outlived him by five months. She died at the age of 90 in April of 1879. She was interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery in Section X with a simple stone. If you are a serious walker or a bicyclist in Philadelphia, you almost certainly passed Morton McMichael's massive statue on Lemon Hill Drive in East Fairmount Park. The 79-inch bronze of a seated McMichael is mounted on an 82-inch granite base. It was created by Indianapolis sculptor John H. Mahoney and funded through public subscription a mere three years after McMichael's death. The inscription, Morton McMichael, a beloved citizen of Philadelphia, tells us nothing about his contribution to the city. And yes, McMichael Park in East Falls, just a mile or so from Laurel Hill Cemetery at Midvale and Henry Avenue, is also named for him, as is the Morton McMichael Elementary School at 36th and Fairmount. It asked the average occupant of Philadelphia about him today, and you would probably get a blank stare. Morton McMichael was born in Bordentown, New Jersey in 1807. This makes him the same age as Joseph Clay Neal and three years younger than Louis Godey. His father was employed at the estate of Joseph Bonaparte, older brother of Napoleon Bonaparte, and former King of Naples and King of Spain. His family moved to Philadelphia while he was young. There he attended University of Pennsylvania. He then read law and was admitted to the Philadelphia Bar in 1827. When he was 19 years old, McMichael became an editor of the Saturday Evening Post. While serving as editor, he began his political career as a Jacksonian Democrat. But by 1838, he was drifting away from the party because of its policies on low tariff. He had an important role in calling the Whig National Convention at Harrisburg in 1839. Yes, there was a national political convention in Harrisburg. There, Ohio Senator William Henry Harrison was chosen to run for president and former Virginia Senator John Tyler for vice president. After the hard cider campaign of 1840, McMichael was an out-and-out Whig and started making pro-Henry Clay speeches around the country. Simultaneously, he served from 1831 to 1836 as editor-in-chief of the Saturday Courier. In 1831, he was one of the judges for the Courier's short story contest. A young Philadelphia author named Edgar Allan Poe had submitted several of his works, but did not win. Nonetheless, McMichael did publish five of Poe's tales in The Courier in 1832. Metzengerstein, The Duke of La Omelette, A Tale of Jerusalem, A Decided Loss, and The Bargain Lost. In 1836, he co-founded the Philadelphia Saturday News and Literary Gazette with Neil and Godey, and then was publisher for Neil's Saturday Gazette and Ladies Literary Museum, with Neil and Godey from 1844 to 1847. The Saturday News was a large newspaper, four pages long, 26 by 20 inches, with eight columns, a yearly subscription cost of $2. Editorial offices were at 100 Walnut Street, later at 211 Chestnut Street. 
Now, the relationship between Edgar Allan Poe and the Saturday News is too complex to cover here. I will tell one anecdote, though. Poe, who moved to Philadelphia in 1838, would have probably seen a piece in the Saturday News titled simply Orang Utang after it was published 26 May. Then on 28 July 1838, he almost certainly saw the story entitled Deliberate Murder in Broadway at Midday, which was adjacent to McMichael's review of Poe's own story, the narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym. This story describes a jealous husband who killed his wife by slitting her throat with a razor. And in the 22 September 1838 edition, there was a brief item about an escaped animal called the mischievous ape. You probably recognize these elements coming together as the plot which later showed up as Poe's classic, The Murders in the Rue Morgue. This story appeared in the April 1841 issue of Graham's Magazine and is considered the first modern detective story. I will talk more about Poe when I talk about Peterson and Graham, both of whom Poe wrote and edited for. Now, while writing and publishing, McMichael simultaneously kept up his political career, serving as a police magistrate and then an alderman in Philadelphia. And while he was serving as alderman, he was the justice of the peace for the county of Philadelphia. In 1843, he ran for and was elected sheriff of Philadelphia County, serving until 1846. That means that McMichael was sheriff during the Philadelphia Bible Riots of 1844. I will someday do an entire podcast about the abolition riots of 1838 and 1842 and the Bible Riots, which are also called the Nativist Riots. Here is a summary. Now, recall, before the consolidation of 1854, Philadelphia City was the land between Arch and South Streets and the two rivers. It was surrounded by many growing communities. While Philadelphia was the third largest city in the country, Northern Liberties, Kensington, Spring Garden, and Southwark were all in the top 20 and were part of Philadelphia County. As Philadelphia became industrialized, it attracted unskilled labor from Europe, most of whom were Irish Catholic, and settled in areas north of the city near the factories and the mills. But there they clashed with American-born second-generation workers, especially the Scotch Protestants who considered themselves Native Americans, a phrase whose meaning has obviously changed in the ensuing 180 years. Roman Catholics, under their diocesan leader, Bishop Francis Kenrick, dutifully sent their children to the public schools, where the curriculum of the day included Bible studies. The Catholics were upset. The version of the Bible being taught was the King James Version and not the Douay Version approved by the Catholic Church. They asked the school board to be able to study their own Bible. The school board agreed. They said that Catholic children could either read their own version of the Bible or be excused from Bible studies altogether. This request and concession was somehow twisted by the nativists that the Catholics have disparaged the King James Bible, or even Catholics don't even want the Bible in school. In May 1844, a group of the American Republican Party, a precursor to the Know Nothing Party a few years later, held a rally in the predominantly Irish part of Kensington on May 6th, 
which developed into street fights. This would sort of be the equivalent today of the KKK holding a rally in Nice Town. Gunfire erupted, several nativists were killed, the district constable was helpless, so County Sheriff McMichael was contacted. He quickly formed a posse, which initially arrived only with clubs and was quickly outnumbered. On May 7th, nativists again denounced Catholics and called on real Americans to defend themselves from the bloody hand of the Pope. A mob marched to Kensington, where gunfire broke out, and nativist mobs set fire to and destroyed the Hibernia fire station, 30 homes, and the market where the violence had begun the day before. The violence did not end until the local state militia, commanded by General George Cadwallader, arrived and dispersed the crowd. Kenrick quickly issued a statement instructing Catholics to avoid violence and confrontations. Things cooled off for a few weeks. On July 6th and 7th, the riots continued, this time in Southwark at the St. Philip Neri Parish, where some parishioners had started accumulating guns. Again, nativists gathered with violence in mind, and McMichael and two aldermen entered the church as a search party. They found three armed men, 53 muskets, 10 pistols, a keg of gunpowder, and ammunition. Rather than remove the munitions and incite the crowd, they demanded the crowds disperse. State militia, an estimated 5,000 men, were again summoned. Shots were fired, men were killed and wounded, and the church was heavily damaged before things settled down. Many Laurel Hill Cemetery residents were involved in this. These riots had national repercussions. Again, this is a very simplified version of what happened. There are many books written about these times in Philadelphia. We will come back to Morton McMichael as sheriff in a future podcast when I talk about the riots of Philadelphia. For now, I will just say that his performance received mixed reviews. I will continue with his role as writer, publisher, and editor. Two years after the nativist riots in 1846, and a year after Joseph Clay Neal died, Morton McMichael began a connection with the Philadelphia North American, which lasted for more than three decades. In fact, it became known as McMichael's North American, much as people referred to Greeley's Tribune. McMichael was 39 years old when he entered into partnership with George Rex Graham. He had several years as a writer and an editor under his belt. McMichael apparently had the gift of a photographic memory. According to his son Charles, when McMichael wrote an address that he was to deliver, he never looked at it a second time. But a stenographic report of his speech would correspond verbatim with the original draft. Some observers compared his oratorical abilities to those of Edmund Burke and Daniel Webster. Lancaster-born John W. Forney, who was Secretary of the United States Senate during the Civil War, called him, quote, the best dinner table orator, the sharpest wit, the most genial of public hosts. The team of Graham and McMichael soon raised the North American to the forefront of Philadelphia journalism. In 1847, McMichael arranged its merger with Joseph R. Chandler's United States Gazette, another Whig publication. Bringing the estimable Dr. Robert Montgomery Byrd into the fold, 
Bird, also interred at Laurel Hill, was a successful physician, playwright, and politician. He, too, will be covered in another podcast. After Graham withdrew from the firm in 1848, it became McMichael and Bird. While Bird excelled at writing and editing, McMichael used his political connections and concentrated more on managerial responsibilities. He made the proper contacts among Philadelphia businessmen and upper-class clientele. In doing so, elevated the role of newspaper men from hacks to much more acceptable social standing. McMichael's legal and literary background gave him entree into upper-class society as a member of the Wistar Association, the St. Andrews Society, and the informal Saturday Night Club. He was also the official greeter for the publication, taking visitors from around the world to late suppers in the oyster cellars of the city. When Bird died in 1854, McMichael took sole managerial and editorial responsibility for the North American. It became the center of Whig political activities in Philadelphia. He believed it was the duty of a newspaper editor to do the thinking for the masses, who had neither the time nor the capacity to make political decisions for themselves. In 1858, it reached a circulation of 6,000 in Pennsylvania, Delaware, New Jersey, Maryland, and even states in the South and the West. Throughout his newspaper career, McMichael remained loyal to a set of fundamental tenets which he cherished. Tariff protection, antipathy towards slavery, the general welfare depending upon whatever catered to the interests of the commercial and industrial world, and unrelenting hostility to the Democratic Party. He could not stomach so-called independent journalism and proudly stated in 1848, the editors of the North American are Whigs. That is, until they flirted with the know-nothings in 1854. And then they finally adopted the mantle of Republicans in 1857. But they were not radical Republicans. The North American considered the work of John Brown at Harper's Ferry in October 1859 as, quote, the folly of a wretched fanatic, end quote. Now, some people intimated that one reason for the North American's success was McMichael's personal friendship with Simon Cameron, Abraham Lincoln's first Secretary of War. This fed him a large share of government advertising and printing. He often soft-pedaled the growing anti-slavery movement in Philadelphia, calling the city, quote, the great emporium of Southern commerce in 1860. He admitted it was purely a financial decision not a question of sentiment with the businessmen of Philadelphia, but a question of bankruptcy. In the midst of the war, he had a change of heart, and the newspaper hailed the Emancipation Proclamation as one of the most important documents ever issued by a president. He had become a Lincoln liberal, especially on Reconstruction. And by June 1867, he had seen enough of Andrew Johnson to declare that the American people had had enough of this stiff-necked, straight-laced, pro-slavery, anti-Negro, abolition-hating, old-fashioned Southern state rights Democrat. He deplored the Senate's failure to convict Johnson. But by this time, McMichael had been elected mayor of Philadelphia. 
That's right. In 1865, McMichael defeated Democrat Daniel M. Fox by 5,000 votes to be elected as mayor. During his tenure, the Fairmount Park Commission was established. McMichael served on its board, and once his term ended in 1869, he was appointed as president of the Fairmount Park Commission. He served until his death. He was also a founding member of the Union League and served as its fourth president from 1870 to 1874. The McMichael Room is on the Broad Street side of the building on the second floor with its grand staircase from the first floor, which has been used by 13 U.S. presidents. McMichael married Mary Estelle, 1812 to 1877, and they had four sons. Morton McMichael Jr. was a senior staff officer and lieutenant colonel under General John Reynolds. He became a prominent banker. William McMichael was captured at the Battle of Shiloh and endured four months as a prisoner of war. After the war, he became a lawyer. Clayton McMichael fought at Gettysburg and served as aide-de-camp to General David Burney and General Winfield Scott Hancock. He later replaced his father as editor of the North American. And Charles Barnsley McMichael was too young to serve in the war. He also entered law and served as a judge in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas. Morton McMichael died in January 1879 at the age of 71. He was lauded in every newspaper in the city. His week took place in the parlor of his late residence at the northeast corner of 19th and Spruce Streets on a wet, disagreeable day. At the head of the coffin, there was a large pillow of white roses with the word rest in red. At the foot was a large cross of lilies and resting beneath the mantle was an armchair of flowers. Interment took place in the family plot at Laurel Hill Cemetery, overlooking the Schuylkill River in Section H, Plots 45 and 46. Next time in the October 2021 edition of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 31, Play Ball, Part 2. Wes Icicle Fissler, born in Camden, New Jersey, was an above-average hitter who played mostly first and second base. Sporting Life magazine called him one of the most graceful players that ever handled a ball. Lon Knight was a right fielder and manager for the Philadelphia Athletic Club, who in 1883 was the second player to hit for the cycle and the first to accomplish this rare feat in a natural order. Single, double, triple, and then home run. Harry Luff played every position on the diamond in four different leagues, but his drunken and sometimes criminal behavior prevented him from being a true star. George W. Orator Schaefer set a Major League Baseball record in 1879 with 50 outfield assists. It still stands. You can look it up. His brother, Zachary Taylor Schaefer, was a light-hitting infielder who played second base for the 1890 Philadelphia Athletics. Years later, his divorce made headlines all over the East Coast. And George Barnum was a moderately successful stage actor and director who decided to become a professional umpire, who in the days of a single umpire covering the whole field, introduced spike shoes to help him navigate the field more easily. These six men are interred at Laurel Hill Cemetery or West Laurel Hill Cemetery. If you're a real fan of the game, you may want to visit them 
after hearing this podcast. Cemetery is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue in the East Falls section of Philadelphia. It's within an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge in Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street. West Laurel Hill Cemetery is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bala Kinwood. Parking is available at the main entrance and at the bell tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the Scepter Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then walk across the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge. Come up Writers Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. from April to October and 7 a.m. to 5 p.m. November through March. We welcome dog walkers. Please pick up after yourself. Please keep your dog on a leash. Bike riders, photographers, bird watchers, nature buffs, and strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheeled variety. Both Laurel Hill Cemetery and West Laurel Hill Cemetery are open for historic tours again. We expect you to follow current CDC guidelines when you join us. And we still have occasional pay-what-you-wish virtual tours via Zoom. Find out more at thelaurelhillcemetery.org or westlaurelhill.com. Here's more to satisfy your curiosity. Laurelhillcemetery.blog, where you can read about even more interesting people. And if you follow us on Instagram, you'll get a daily reminder of our inhabitants and activities. And if that's not enough, check out the virtual tours I have done on YouTube. Laurel Hill Cemetery, Hotspots and Storied Plots, virtual tours number one and number two will both give you an overview. At All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories video podcast number one is, as I mentioned before, on illustrator A.B. Frost and his family. Plus, podcast number 22 on ornithologists and entomologists is also available as a video podcast on YouTube. It's called The Birds and the Bees. Now, once you have fallen in love with these hot spots, please become a member of Laurel Hill and West Laurel Hill Cemetery. Not only will you support the cemetery's activity, you will have the opportunity for several members-only special tours conducted each year, including inside some of the mausoleums at West Laurel Hill. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. Don't forget, upcoming, we have the RIP 5K in early October. You and your dog, or your dog, may dress in costume and come out and race for charity. And then there is the big fundraiser for the cemetery, the Gravedigger's Ball, which will be on October 15th this year at the Pennsylvania Museum. Yes, it is expensive. Yes, it is one of the top events of the year. And it is a wonderful place for you to donate your money. And you get to dress up and take pictures, and you'll have stories to tell for years after the Gravedigger's Ball.
I'm Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University, reminding you to keep body and soul together until the next time on All Bones Considered, where the plot thickens. You can contact me at my email address, joe at joelex.net. I also invite you to listen to the radio show that I do for WPPM-FM in Philadelphia every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. East Coast time. I go back 60 years. I read you some news stories while also playing jazz that was recorded that week. You can stream it from phillycam.org slash listen or from my website, joelex.xyz. And I will promote another podcast for fans of Philadelphia history. It's called Adventures in Theater History, Philadelphia. There's a new episode every other Friday. Check it out. I think you'll like it. Stick around to hear the references that I use for this podcast, and there are plenty of them. Until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. Lots of references for this one. I think an essential book for anyone researching newspapers and magazines in Philadelphia is The Literary History of Philadelphia by Ellis Paxson Oberholzer. It was printed in a limited edition of 1000 by George W. Jacobs and Company, Philadelphia, in 1906. I was lucky to find a disintegrating copy online for just a few dollars before I found out that it's also available at no charge from archive.com. Two online articles were also very useful. Edgar Allan Poe and the Philadelphia Saturday News by Richard Copley. Baltimore, the Edgar Allan Poe Society of Baltimore, 1991 and Edgar Allan Poe and the Philadelphians, a reminiscence by a contemporary by J. Albert Robbins. Poe Studies, Volume 5, Number 2, December 1972, pages 45 to 48. For Joseph Clay Neal, try the comic writers of Philadelphia, George Helmbold's The Tickler, Joseph C. Neal's City Worthies, and The Beginning of Modern Periodical Humor in America. It's by David E. E. Sloan from Victorian Periodicals Review, Volume 28, Number 3, Fall 1995, pages 186 to 198. That's published by the Johns Hopkins University Press. A Study in the Humor of the Old Northeast, Joseph C. Neal's Charcoal Sketches and the Comic Urban Frontier. That's also by David E. E. Sloan. That was in Studies in American Humor, Volume 3, Number 2, 2017, pages 178 to 203. Our Contributors, Number 10, Joseph C. Neal by Morton McMichael. That's in Graham's Magazine, Volume 24, Volume 2, February 1844. So that was written while Neal was still alive. You can also find Neal's 1844 work, Peter Plotty and Other Oddities, and the 1850 Picnic Sketches online for free in PDF format. For Louis Antoine Godey, I recommend The Genesis of Godey's Ladies Book by Lawrence Martin. That was in the New England Quarterly, January 1928, Volume 1, Number 1, pages 41 through 70. Godey's Choice by George L. Hersey, Journal of the Society of Architectural Historians, Volume 18, Number 3, October 1959, pages 104 to 111. And The Reign of Brute Force is Now Over, 
a content analysis of Godey's Ladies' Book, 1830 to 1860, by Laura McCall. That's from the Journal of the Early Republic, Volume 9, Number 2, Summer 1989, pages 217 to 236. It was published by the University of Pennsylvania Free Press. For Morton McMichael, I recommend Morton McMichael's North American by Robert L. Bloom. That was from the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, Volume 77, Number 2, April 1952, pages 164 to 180. That's also from the University of Pennsylvania Press. So until next month on All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, this is Dr. Joe Lex asking you to stay safe, stay well.